Welcome to the New Books Network. In comparison with other prophetic books, the book of Ezekiel sets forth a unique angle on the relationship of the Lord's Word and Spirit. In his monograph, Word and Spirit in Ezekiel, James Robson argues that the relationship between the Lord's Spirit and the Lord's Word in Ezekiel is to be understood not so much in terms of inspiration and authentication of the prophet, but in terms of the transformation of the book's addressees. Join us as we speak with James Robson about his book, Word and Spirit in Ezekiel. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. James Robson is principal of Oak Hill College in the UK, and he's also the author of Honey from the Rock, Deuteronomy for the People of God, and Deuteronomy 1-11, through a handbook of the Hebrew text. James, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be on it. So, James, how did you get interested in studying the book of Ezekiel? <laughs> That's a great question. In fact, um, it's quite a long story, and I see God's providence in that. It was a topic, perhaps more than a book. So there are a few strands that be- converged, I think. So the first one was that I was a classicist as an undergraduate in Oxford. So I studied Latin and Greek. And I loved ancient languages. And um, when I went to seminary in the UK, or theological college is called here, very few seem to want to study Hebrew, which I was mystified by, but I think it's because people found that um, learning Greek was plenty without Hebrew, and I know that's probably the case in a lot of places around the world. But I was keen to um, study Hebrew, so I developed a love for the Old Testament and for Hebrew, and um, so that was one strand in the mix. Um, A second was, from a related angle, um, I'd become a Christian in a more charismatic church, actually as a student in Oxford. And the focus there was perhaps more on the person and work of uh, God's spirit. And then uh, over the next years, I got perhaps a bit more involved in more classic evangelical churches, but was more of an emphasis on the Bible. And someone highlighted to me, do you know, it's interesting that um, God's word is carried on God's breath. And there were lots of debates between more conservative and more charismatic and uh, I just wanted to push into that space. The third one was um, uh, that uh, I was encouraged by my uh, supervisor, my my, uh, professors in Oxford to think about further seminary, to think about further study. And just down the road from where I was um, serving as an associate minister, as a curate in the, the church there, was Oak Hill College. In fact, the seminary, I'm now the principal. And the super... And then... The principal encouraged me to come do some further study there, as has my um, people I'd worked with, my uh, professors in Oxford. And the professor here in Oak Hill College, Thomas Rents, had just completed a PhD on the book of Ezekiel. And so there were a number of things that came together. One was interested in word and spirit. One was a supervisor who knew a lot about Ezekiel. One was a lot of Hebrew in the Old Testament and the recognition that certainly in this UK context, very few, particularly evangelicals, were thinking about further study, not in Old Testament, they didn't have Hebrew, and and um, so this was a great place to go. And then, of course, um, it was the book itself, which, well, um, the spirit is very important. Now, what are some clues as to the importance of Ruach, or spirit, in Ezekiel? <laughs> Well, one of the challenges before you start 
is you can just simply count up words and without necessarily knowing um, the, the words got different meanings or different senses. Ruach, it can be just a physical wind or it can be uh, the breath of the breath of life of somebody. Um, or it can be even something like the mind. And in fact, later on in Ezekiel, it's used for a side. We think of the, um, the four winds that are used later on. And then that then just becomes used to, used to the four points of the compass. So you can have these meteorological senses and anthropological ones, as well as theological ones. But what was extraordinary to notice was where you compare um, Ezekiel with two other works, which in many ways Ezekiel's closest to in terms of language and description, thought form. In Jeremiah, there's no theological uses of the word ruach. In Leviticus, um, I know close to your heart, Michael, um, there's, um, there are no references to ruach as spirit in that sense. And then even if you look across to some other literature, sometimes called the Deuteronomistic literature, and um, the uh, Kings and uh, journey from Deuteronomy through to the end of two Kings, it often talks about um, the Lord, your you shall be my people and I shall be your God. There's a great emphasis on the lave or the heart or the mind, the center of moral decision making. But there's basically nothing on Ruach. When you come to Ezekiel, there are 51 or perhaps 52 references Dan Block describes Ezekiel as the prophet of the spirit. And Ruach is all over the book, whether we say in anthropological or meteorological or theological, because often the uses seem to blend together. So as an illustration of that, it's this Ruach that conveys the chariot throne as, the, as Yahweh, the Lord, arrives in exile. It's Ruach that uh, blows in destructive judgment. It's Ruach that enters the prophet in chapter 2 and verse 2 and then sets Ezekiel on his feet. It's Ruach that um, falls on him as he receives these visions and revelations. It's Ruach that brings new life to the dry bones in Ezekiel 37, where there are 10 references just in 14 verses. It's Ruach that's this gift to a despairing, rebellious people, and one day will be poured out on the house of Israel. And so you have this extraordinary contrast, in a sense, between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And that really fascinated me, just in some numbers of occurrence, but also the significant places. And perhaps, say, almost most significantly of all, there are these three extraordinary little clusters of places where in Ezekiel 11 and 36, God says that he's going to give his people a new heart and new spirit. And then in chapter 18 and verse 31, he says, get for yourself a new heart and new spirit. So you can see not just a number of occurrences, but the theological and message of the book significance of the spirit is right at the forefront. James, would you tell us about the conjunction of word and spirit in the flow of Ezekiel? Yeah, so, so I'll say what led me into this point was this potential uh, well, semantic connection between Ruach as the breath of God, and is the breath of God one that carries God's word? And it took me a little bit by surprise, um, 
because I came across an article by Sigmund Movenkel from 1934, and he basically said, if you talk to the the pre-classical prophets, the Elijahs and Elishas, or the prophets in 1 Kings 22, they'd have talked about God's spirit as um, the empowering, supernatural, ecstatic kind of utterance spirit. But when you come to the classical prophets, the, the Hoseas and the Isaiahs, then they said, no, no, I'm not one of those spirit people. Those are the, the prophets in the, forgive the kind of colloquial way of putting it, they're the weird raving prophets over there. We're, we're the rational ones, the reasonable ones. And so the particular reading of Hosea 9-7, the prophet is a fool, the man of the spirit is mad. And so there was a sense in which you had these two groups, the, the prophets of prosperity, the prophets in the court, the prophets with ecstatic utterances and graphic demonstrations who were the spirit-possessed, and we're the reasonable, rational, intelligent, thoughtful people. And there was this seemed to have been this strand. And then along comes Ezekiel, and he seems to be recovering, as Zimeli talks about, this sense of the pre-classical prophets to authenticate his ministry. But it seemed to be rather strange to me if that was the prevailing narrative, whether that was really what was going on. And uh, however, how else could it possibly be um, authenticating if it had been so more recently repudiated? But anyway, what, what, as I looked into this a bit more, I say that narrative didn't quite seem to make much sense to me. But here you had um, the prophet Ezekiel, and for the most part, one might call about potentiating inspiration. That is God's spirit or the Ruach or the Ruach Elohim, the spirit of God, comes upon him and then he receives the revelation most of the time, it wasn't necessarily this Ruach that actually physically breathed the words to him, though one could argue, and I, and I did try to argue in the book, that even his visions are in a sense a word with a capital F, uh, W from God, and they were the ones that were inspired by God's uh, Ruach or um, his uh, spirit. But in many ways... Um, there was a sense in which it wasn't so much um, in the focus of Ezekiel's inspiration where Ruach was to be focused and to be found, but more it was, I say, potentiating, enable Ezekiel to hear the prophet. But it, it was less a kind of, a, it was much more a tearing away this sense of all illusions, revealing a reality making that reality, as Wagner says, or Wagner says, experienceable, comprehensible and visible. So this ecstasy, this mystical experience which Ezekiel seemed to have as he was mysteriously transported, leads him to the place where he sees reality in history as if the veil has been um, opened out and he can see what the reality is in the present actual historical relation. So you find it's something about his inspiration, his illumination, empowering him and enabling him to hear God's words. But it's something also, as we're going to see in a moment, about the transformation of God's people. So what would you say, in a nutshell, is the message of Ezekiel in relation to word and spirit? Yeah, well, as so many looked at it in terms of the focus on the inspiration of the prophet, 
But what really struck me was how, just to take a little example of this, in Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 2, this Ruach, as, as, as Ezekiel falls flat on his face before the Lord, Ruach, spirit, wind, breath, enters Ezekiel and sets him on his feet. And the next time, we, the only other time we find this, this image, this language used, is of the dry bones and the spirit entering those dry bones and setting them on their feet. And so it seems that the focus is less on the inspiration of the prophet, though it is that as a unique event, but it's on Ruach as the transforming power enabling the unresponsive to become responsive, the rebellious to uh, be obedient, the stubborn to become obedient. So it's not just the breath of life that enters, it's the transforming Ruach that empowers and enables obedience, first for the prophet and then in chapter two, and then for God's people. And the striking thing about that is that's nothing other than an act of new creation. So that just as the extraordinary picture we find in Ezekiel 37 of um, this two stages, this very strange vision is that they're, they're on their feet, they're formed, these lifeless bones that then become formed into people. But then Ezekiel, there's, there's no breath in them. There's no ruach in them. And this, this echoes back, it seems to be, back to Genesis chapter 2, where you have the forming and then the inbreathing. And so with the goal of both Adam and Ezekiel becoming a living creature, a, li a, a human, a true a human. And then they get take their place in the land that God has put them in. And there are echoes between Genesis chapter 2 and humanity. And very striking in that, that regard that so Ezekiel is a kind of Adamic figure. He almost embodies in himself the start of this new creation. He's described as Ben Adam, son of humanity, all through the book. The failure for him means you should surely die. And then obedience to him, the in spirit inspired obedience, means that he has life and he truly lives. And so that sense of the empowering, inspiring, enabling, and then also enables, uh, brings about obedience. So God's Ruach is this remedy for exiles whose own will is corrupt, whose breath is gone, whose rebellion is inveterate. It's this empowering gift that ensures obedience, chapter 36, you know, new heart and new spirit, and it calls you to walk in God's ways, the life-giving spirit that revives the dead exiles, and then the creating gift that God pours out with extravagant generosity in chapter 39. So a very dynamic, powerful, God-centered vision of restoration. Well, our time is almost up, but before we sign off, tell us, what are you working on these days? Yeah, well, thank you, Michael. So um, uh, say I, my PhD on Ezekiel, I've moved across more recently and mostly to Ju the book of Deuteronomy. And so I've enjoyed very much um, Honey from the Rock and, and looking at the theological message of Deuteronomy. And then more recently, it's a handbook to the Hebrew text of Deuteronomy 1 to 11, because I found the teaching of Hebrew is just so helpful working with students on that and occupying that place. And I really loved that book. So I'm actually in conversations with Dennis Tucker, the, um, who's the editor with Baylor, about other possible volumes in the series. Um, it's not confirmed yet. I'm in conversations, 
I was rather disappointed that the rest of Deuteronomy seems now to have been taken after a slight different direction. And I'd love to do something in the Psalms of Ascent, which I've been working on quite a bit on the Hebrew of that. But I'm looking, therefore, probably to Elijah and Elisha and the narratives there in Kings. James, thank you for sharing your work on Ezekiel with us. It's been a fascinating time. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate your time. Friends, thank you for listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Goodbye.